0: Hi, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor in chief of the New Books Network, and I just wanted to tell you that the following interview originally appeared on Counterpoint with Jonathan Judakin, which is broadcast on WKNO FM. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Counterpoint. I'm Jonathan Judakin. With me today is James Galvin, professor of modern Middle Eastern history at the University of California, Los Angeles. His most recent book is the revised and updated edition of The Arab Uprisings, What Everyone Needs to Know. If you want to be informed about what's going on in the Middle East today, this short, easy to read book is the best work out there. Here to give us a primer on his primer is James Galvin. Welcome to CounterPoint. Thank you for having me. Jim, you dedicate the Arab uprisings to all those who are searching for heroes, saying they should look to the Arab world. Why this dedication?
1: I think we've lost sight of what is fundamental about what's going on in the Arab world. And, of course, we're going to do that since a lot of water has gone under the bridge. Um, the Egyptian situation has turned out very, very badly. The Syrian situation, now Yemen, uh, etc. But I think what we really have to focus on is the fact that over the last four years or so, um, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Arabs have gone out on the street because they could not anymore tolerate the conditions in the Arab world. And they knew full well what was going to happen to them. They knew full well that the full might of the state was arrayed against them. Now, things turned out more lucky in Tunisia and Egypt, for example, the army refused to fire on demonstrators. But you look at what's going on in Syria or in Yemen or in Libya or any of the other places in which governments are either fragmented and the militaries took both sides or in which the military stood with the government. And these were people who actually said, I can't take this anymore anymore we have to change. I might die in the process. That's why the dedication was made in that way.
0: So in some senses, you're saying that these are the heroes of democracy and we've got something to learn from what's going on in the Arab street about what what democratization really takes in some parts of the world.
1: Absolutely. And I think we've lost sight of that as well. Um, about a year into the uprisings, things began to turn badly. And as of now, for example, the only uh, place that seems to be on the right track is Tunisia. But we have to understand that the impulse behind what went on in 2010 and 2011 goes back thirty years or so that there was a movement for democratization and for human rights that began at around that time, began with the Berber Spring in Algeria in nineteen eighty and went through, for example, uh the Black October riots in in Algeria, um the Damascus Spring, uh Kafaya the Kafaya movement in Egypt uh, the Bahraini Intifada in 1994 through, 90, through 2000, etc. So, throughout the Arab world, what we've seen is uprising after uprising, protest movement after protest movement, because the Arab world was not left behind in terms of the fight for human rights, the fight for democratization. It has always appeared to outside observers that you have Eastern Europe on the one hand, you've had Eastern Asia on the other hand, in which various movements, mass movements uh, for democracy, mass movements for human rights have taken place and that the Arab world was the odd man out. The Arab world was not the odd man out. We were just not looking at it.
0: Um, That's that's really helpful. Can you just um, drill a little deeper into what the conditions were that this much longer-term struggle uh, that you've now talked about uh, beginning 30 years ago and and sort of waxing and waning at at various periods, what was that struggle about? What were some of the key factors that have shaped these revolts?
1: Well, I think that there were two factors in particular that are important. The first was a transformation of the Arab state. In the 1950s and 1960s, states took on a tremendous amount of responsibilities for their populations, um, subsidies of food, subsidies for petroleum products, for example, um, free education, health care, et cetera. Now, these goods were not delivered without problems, that's for sure. But there seemed to be a bargain that had been made between states and their populations. And that bargain was, sit down, shut up, we'll take care of you. Beginning in the late 1970s or so, states began to move away from this bargain that they had made with their populations, and states began at that point to adopt neoliberal policies, policies that were pretty much imposed on the region by not only the United States, but international institutions like the International Monetary Fund. They stopped, for example, blanket subsidies on food and fuel. Uh, they began to cut back in terms of guaranteeing employment and various other things as well. So we have a whole host of economic grievances. And these economic grievances were actually about social justice and economic justice. On the other hand, beginning in, around the same time, around the 1970s or so, we begin to see in an accelerating way a global diffusion of a notion of human rights that consists of a notion of individual rights, uh, political rights, civil rights. Personal rights, including the right to be able to control your own body, etc., and the Middle East was not immune to that either. So we have the conjunction of these two factors that uh, began in the 1970s or so. By the beginning of the 1980s, we see various IMF riots, bread riots that break out in in the Middle East. We also see uh, protest movements in favor of human rights, in favor of opening up and democratization of various societies. And we see this throughout the Middle East. We see this. Not only in Tunisia, for example, or Egypt, but we also see it in Syria and in various other places that were among the worst offenders of human rights and among the most autocratic of societies as well. Obviously, no Tunisian had to be informed by a foreign source that there was corruption and that things were not going well in Tunisia, that it was a repressive regime. We like to take credit for things that are not really our doing. And this in part has to do with the social media aspect of it. America invented social media. Um, The West was very, very strong in promoting social media. And what we began to do is to look at outside sources for what had gone on simply because we know that Arabs, and I'm being facetious here, we know that Arabs themselves could not take responsibility for uh, promoting democratization or for promoting human rights. Is it your view that the Arab
0: uprisings may be the beginning of a new wave of democratization? And and if that's the case, where do things stand in this process now?
1: We shouldn't become too enamored by this notion of a wave. Uh, A wave is a metaphor. And uh, like all metaphors, it's got a positive aspect to it and a negative aspect to it. In terms of what went on in the Arab world beginning in December of 2010 and stretching all the way to present, actually, but... People tend to cut it off at the end of March in 2011 with the outbreak of the Syrian revolution. Uh, what went on in the Arab world was um, obviously people looking around them saying, this is what happened in Tunisia, this is what happened in Egypt, we could do the same thing. There's no doubt about that. There's no doubt that people borrowed um, tactics, they borrowed slogans Everybody had to have a Tahrir Square, for example. When there wasn't a the Tahrir Square, which is a very popular name for squares in the Arab world, uh, they created one. Um, when uh, uh, they borrowed slogans, for example, uh, the people demand the end of the regime. They had days of rage. Uh, all these things were borrowed one from the other. But one of the reasons why it could be so successful in the Arab world, this sort of wave that that we're talking about, is that – uh, the regimes are what political science, scientists called isomorphic. In other words, because most of the Arab world became, uh, received its independence at the end of World War II, but over time, people held the government's feet to the fire. They said, okay, look, you promised us this. You're not doing this. And people began to actually monitor the governments, their observance of human rights. It became part of the political discourse. And if you want to understand what happened in the Arab world most recently, then you have to go back to this time. Now, one of the problems that many people have right now is they're looking at the way in which these uprisings have taken a bad turn. And of course, governments were going to fight back, and sometimes they've done so viciously. And they say, "Okay, look, you know, maybe the Middle East isn't ready for human rights, democratization, and so on and so forth. But if you look at the exact same thing in Europe, what you have to do is consider the long the long uh, term that it took for Europe to democratize. If you're looking at Western Europe, you can say, okay, let's time the process from 1848, from the revolutions of 1848, which were based on nationalist and liberal principles, which were all put down and they all failed. It took over a hundred years for Western Europe to uh, democratize and to recognize human rights. Eastern Europe, it took 150 years. Okay. But the importance of 1848 and the importance of the Arab uprisings is not that they succeeded immediately. It's that they are the canary in the coal mine. They've indicated that human rights democratization will forever be part of the discourse of the Middle East, no matter how repressive these regimes might be, no matter what uh, Islamist organizations might ascend during this period of time, no matter what happens with ISIS and al-Qaeda, that there is a foundation for human rights and democratization there.
0: If you're just tuning in, I'm Jonathan Judakin, and you're listening to CounterPoint. I'm talking to James Galvin about his newly revised and updated book, The Arab Uprisings, What Everyone Needs to Know. Jim, the way you divide up the heart of the book is to focus on the beginnings of the revolts in the deep states of Tunisia and Egypt, and then you address the weak states of Yemen and Libya, and finally the coup-proof states of Bahrain and Syria before concluding with the regional and global meanings of these events. Now, we don't have time to discuss all of this, but I'd like to dip into each if we can. Let's start uh, with Egypt. Why did the Egyptian military overthrow Morsi's Muslim Brotherhood government?
1: Well, we have to go back, I think, to understand that to the way the revolution itself played itself out or didn't play itself out. Remember in both Tunisia and in Egypt, the military stepped in to stop to stop a revolutionary process uh the military took over in egypt um and um uh, stayed in power actually for uh, a substantial period of time, only uh, relinquishing that power uh, after it appeared that um, the forces of change were not going to threaten uh, the military's uh, important role in the economy, for example, or the very identity of the military itself. Um, the military stood back and watched actually as events unfolded themselves in in Egypt. Um, And there was this constant battle that was taking place between the new Muslim Brotherhood government of Mohammed Morsi and not only the military, but the deep state, as you mentioned, the entrenched powers of the judiciary, for example, the bureaucracy, the security apparatus. And sometimes Morsi won, sometimes he lost. At a certain point, uh, the uh, Morsi and the army found themselves locked in what they considered to be a zero-sum game. A victory for one meant the defeat, the absolute defeat of the other. And the military um, at a certain point said enough is enough. Um, we are learning more and more about the dissatisfaction with the Morsi uh, presidency. Um, the dissatisfaction had very, very strong roots. I mean, there were very good reasons to be unhappy with Morsi and his style of rule. He pushed through a constitution that was amazingly unpopular in Egypt. Um, he won, uh, just a slight margin of the vote yet did not reach out to opposition parties, pretty much made an exclusively Muslim brotherhood government. Uh, he threatened the deep state in numerous ways, but I think what we have to do is look at it in terms of the fact that, um, the army, the judiciary, the bureaucracy itself, um, Felt so threatened by uh, a Muslim Brotherhood rule uh, and by the possibility that they would lose their central role in running Egypt that um, they themselves instigated the protest movement.
0: Now, if we turn from these deep states to the weak states of Libya and Yemen and and um, we think a little bit about what's going on on the front pages of the news today. Um, in the case of Yemen, it's focusing on the Hutu rebellion and the Saudi-led uh, bombing campaigns. If we also think about the immigration crisis that's taking place where tens of thousands of people have been fleeing the Middle East and northern Africa for the shores of Europe during this past spring. It seems as if these weak states over the course of the um, rebellions have ended up resulting in, in almost in failed states. Would you agree that that's part of what's taking place and and um, resulting in the most recent uh, crises? Oh,
1: well, absolutely. Um, and you've nailed it with Yemen and Libya in particular. Um, if we compare those two states to, let's say, Tunisia and Egypt, I mean, one of the things that I talk about in my book, and, and I'm a historian, so I come at it from a historical angle, um, Egypt and Tunisia have had about 200 years of state building. They have real institutions there so that when a protest movement would emerge, for example, in either one of those states, one part of the regime could turn on another part of the regime uh, that was threatening – Uh, the stability of the regime. So the militaries in both places could turn on the executive in both places and and force executives out, uh, Ben Ali in Tunisia or Mubarak in Egypt. Um, And still, there would be a state apparatus there. There would be an army. There would be a judiciary. There would be a bureaucracy. There would be a security apparatus. All these aspects of the deep state had been in place for 200 years. Now, if you look at Yemen and you look at Libya, These are extraordinarily weak states. These are states which have not had a long history, that the apparatus of the regime was not only not capable of running the entirety of this territory over which it it was supposed to run, but also uh, in various points decided not to. Uh, In both cases, these were patronage regimes whereby rather than working through institutions, the regimes themselves would, or the leaders of the regimes, would balance off factions within society, Um, tribe against tribe, for example, political party against political party, family against family, in order to be able to manipulate politics. And institutions, permanent institutions, only would have gotten in the way of that. So there was very little institution building that had gone on. And as a matter of fact, Gaddafi claimed to have created what was called the Jamahiriya. Uh, a rule by the masses, so that there officially were no zero institutions in Libya. It was supposed to be a direct democracy. It was actually a autocracy that was run by Gaddafi, his close associates, and his family. So when this regime was pressure was put on this regime, um, the regime simply crumbled, it fragmented. Uh, into a hundred little pieces. Uh, and parts of the military went with the regime. Parts went with the opposition. Parts of the bureaucracy went with the mu- regime. Parts with the opposition. Uh, militias emerged within uh, society, um, uh, mostly locally based. Same thing has occurred within Yemen as well. So, what we see is a fragmentation of these regimes. Now, uh libya and yemen are also unique in another way which is that they are really peripheral to the state system in in the region and when i when i say that this is important for a very very specific reg- reason you see a similar sort of uh chaos taking place in syria and to a lesser extent in iraq as well but the international community is not going to let syria or iraq fragment the international community have had a stake in maintaining the state system in the Middle East and has intervened. For example, the Gulf War of nineteen ninety one when Iraq attempted to take over Kuwait. Uh, the idea was that no, we have we cannot allow this because we have a balance within the Gulf, we have a balance within the region, so therefore we have to maintain that balance, and Kuwait has to be independent of Iraq. Okay, fine and good. So the, uh, international community is not going to let Syria to, uh, 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 split apart. It's not going to let Iraq split apart. So, uh, we see this possibility in, in, in Yemen, a north-south divide. In Libya, what we see is a fragmentation along regional lines. Uh, that's being portrayed actually as a secular versus Islamist conflict, but it's more of a conflict between uh, the region uh, around Benghazi on the one hand, uh, the eastern part of Libya, and the western part of Libya, which was uh, more firmly under government control when Gaddafi ran it. If uh, Libya descends into chaos and fragments, then the international community uh, will very likely not do anything uh, to put it back together again. Uh, in the case of Syria and Iraq, on the other hand, the question is that uh, these, these states are too important, too central, so that the international community cannot allow them to fragment.
0: Now, you say that about Syria, Jim, but you also you cite a Syrian activist who said that um, two and a half years into the revolt, opposition led Syria is mad Max meets the sopranos. Given your analysis of it, It's unclear exactly how this is going to be put back together in the aftermath of of what seems to be unfolding there.
1: It depends on what you mean by being put back together. For example, the international community recognizes uh, something called Somalia as a state. Somalia has a seat in the United Nations. It's still a part of international treaties with telecommunications and civil aviation and so on and so forth. still has a national flag. Um, but we all know that Somalia is not a real state. It's a failed state. Uh, The same thing is likely to occur with Syria and perhaps to a lesser extent with Iraq. We have ISIS there, the Islamic State, um, that has taken control in parts of the Far East, uh, the oil-producing areas of of, of Syria as well. We see the Kurds taking, uh, uh, having established an autonomous zone called Rojava, for example, which means Western Kurdistan in northern Syria as well on the Turkish border. We see all these groupings that have been able to take control control over certain amounts of turf. We also see uh, the international community not recognizing these various uh, parts of Syria as true states. Jim, you've given a couple of
0: lectures in Memphis, first on al-Qaeda and this spring on ISIS. In the Arab uprisings, what everyone needs to know, you have wonderful short clips on both organizations. You state at one point, Over time, al-Qaeda in Iraq evolved into the Islamic State of Iraq, which in turn evolved into the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. But you also show that these are clearly competing entities with important differences. So can you highlight for us some of the main differences between, well, these gangs, al-Qaeda and ISIS?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, And I think it's very important for your listeners to understand that they, they are very different. They're both very dangerous, of course. Um, they do not represent an existential threat to the United States, but they could do, you know, significant damage as we saw on 9-11. Um, both groups come out of that soup of jihadi organizations that was supported by, uh, Saudi Arabia and the United States when, uh, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. But uh, the origins of the two groups are very, very different. If you identify al-Qaeda with bin Laden, for example, uh, you could identify ISIS with its uh, founder – uh and we have to go back in history he didn't really found ISIS but the organization he founded morphed into another organization to another organization and eventually ended up as ISIS and that was uh Abu Musab al-Zarqawi Zarqawi was a thug um he had been in, he had been jailed for um a variety of offenses including sexual abuses and drug running um in Jordan um he uh met up with uh, al-Qaeda in um, Afghanistan Uh, He met with bin Laden, who was not impressed at all with, with him. Uh, he returned uh, to uh, Jordan and then went back to Afghanistan where uh, he set up a camp with a uh, $200,000 uh, seed grant from Al-Qaeda um, and then ended up in Iraq. And even though Al-Qaeda uh, Central had serious disagreements with what was going on in Iraq and what Zarqawi was doing, uh, it actually made Zarqawi's organization an affiliate of Al-Qaeda, and they called it Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Now, the most important disagreement is the disagreement over how do you treat Muslims who are not particularly on your side? Um, Do you look at them as a pool who eventually can be won over, which was Al-Qaeda's standpoint, or do you look at them as the enemy? Do you look at them as people who have defected from the Islamic faith, and people who should be uh, treated as apostates, therefore killed? Now, this is called takfir in Arabic. It's this idea that some Muslims who have fallen away, or or, or basically mu- people within the community, people who call themselves Muslims, who do not follow the Islam that you. Believe is the true Islam, they should not be considered to be real Muslims. And so, therefore, they should be thrown out of the community and killed. Now, Iraq is predominantly Shi. These groups are, of course, Sunni groups. And what Sirqawi began to do was to make war on Shis. He, for example, set off car bombs in important mosques. Um, he... Uh, uh, the targeted pilgrimage pilgrimages and various Shi rituals and that sort of thing. The idea being to radicalize a Sunni community by setting off tit for tat um, uh, conflicts between Shis and 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 Sunnis. Now, Al Qaeda was aghast at this because Al Qaeda's main focus has always been what they call the far enemy. And they believed that they had the United States trapped in 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 Iraq in the same way that they had the Soviet Union trapped in Afghanistan, and that according to uh, Al Qaeda lore, it was their battle against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan that destroyed the Soviet Union, and according to Al Qaeda lore, it would be their battle against America in Iraq that would destroy America. The idea, the problem, however, was that Zarqawi was not fighting America. He was fighting Shis. And so there's a very, very strong rebuke from al-Qaeda central to al-Qaeda in Iraq. We see the same thing taking place now within um, al-Qaeda and ISIS. There's a split between the two organizations. Al-Qaeda has talked about a caliphate, but they've always kicked the can down the road. It's virtually impossible to define a caliphate in the world of nation-states. That's not like another nation-state. Uh, and al-Qaeda doesn't like the idea of nation-states, so therefore um, would have to come up with something that was really imaginative, and they haven't been able to do it. So fundamentally, they talk about every once in a while a caliphate in the future. In the meantime, they set up these temporary emirates with which they vex and exhaust, in their words, um, the the uh, their enemies uh, and their enemy is defined as the crusader Zionist conspiracy. Uh, everybody who is making war on islam uh, Isis on the other hand uh, has not kicked the can down the road. They have established a caliphate that looks suspiciously like any other state, a particularly despicable state a state nonetheless. They have ministries. They're issuing their own currency. They claim that they'll be issuing passports. They have uh, uh, driver's licenses. I mean, the whole bit. They have their own security apparatus, a police force. So it's they've established a totalitarian state in a world of nation-states, and they're calling it a caliphate, and they're trying to expand it as much as possible. So al-Qaeda has this vision, this very non-articulated vision of something in the future that will be created. And ISIS has this uh, actually running a day-to-day state apparatus. And that's also the way things have have shifted. And ISIS has taken a lot of the wind out of the sails of Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda appears to be your father's jihadi organization right now. Um, with ISIS actually winning victory after victory and so on and so forth on the ground. Well, that was then. That was last year. Now ISIS is being pushed back um, on a variety of fronts for a variety of reasons. It's losing territory, not gaining territory. It's on the defensive at the present time. Um, one thing that's actually very interesting is that according to poll polling data – ISIS is even more unpopular among Arabs than the United States, which is saying quite a bit, actually. Um, so uh, I, uh, it's not winning the battle for hearts and minds. It's not winning on the battlefield. It's being pushed back at the present time. And I have a feeling within a couple of years what we're going to see is that ISIS will be completely destroyed in Iraq and will become just another gang in Syria, like the Free Syrian Army or the Islamic Front or the Victory Army or any of these other uh, uh, militias that have taken swaths of territory.
0: Well, I certainly hope that um, Yogi Berra is wrong and that your predictions uh, about the future are right. I I also want to say that I don't think it's unfair that, that really – Most of us remain so woefully ignorant of what is going on in the Middle East, and so I very much appreciate you sharing some of your knowledge with us today and really for your fabulous book, The Arab Uprisings, What Everyone Needs to Know, not only because it's such a wonderful primer, but because it really makes plain that if you want a deeper understanding of the world, we need to turn to scholars like you who draw on a vast reservoir of knowledge to illuminate the world. James Galvin, many thanks.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Putting a spotlight on the role of scholars, academics, and intellectuals, and how their work illuminates the issues we face locally and globally, CounterPoint is a monthly broadcast on WKNO-FM. To listen to this show in its entirety, visit wknofm.org and click on the news menu item where you'll find a link to CounterPoint. You can podcast CounterPoint by visiting iTunes and searching for WKNO-CounterPoint. Counterpoint is a production of WKNO-FM in association with the Spence L. Wilson Chair in Humanities at Rhodes College. Justin Willingham produces the show. I'm Jonathan Judakin. Thanks for listening. 1.1 1.1 WKNO, Memphis or 90.1 WKNP Jackson, NPR for the Mid-South broadcasting in HD and online at WKNLFM.org. Coming up next, Fresh Air with Terry Gross followed by an evening of classical music which will begin at 8. I'm Justin Willingham thanks for tuning in and thanks for supporting this station. It is 7 o'clock